I didn't return to our room in the French Quarter for two straight nights, but I password protected my manuscript while Carla was taking a shower, and then I grabbed a bottle I was halfway through drinking before I walked out. Most of that time is a blur. There was a fair amount of drinking. I'd get tossed out of one establishment and then head down the street to drink at another until they tossed me out. I think I slept on the floor of a public restroom at one point. Actually, I know I did because I remember the smell, but I'm not sure if I slept there for a significant amount of time or just passed out and regained consciousness after a few minutes. Time has a way of compressing when you're drunk. On the third day, I rose again, and as I did, wondered if Jesus stank this much when he rose from the dead. They don't talk about these things in the Bible. Bodily functions, daily aches and pains. Did Jesus ever shit himself? I'm sure he had if he allegedly lived for a few decades. Nobody escapes about a diarrhea for that long, do they? I was thinking about this as I climbed the stairs. The pain in my goddamn leg hadn't got any better. As I let myself into the room, I noticed Carla splayed out on the bed, and it appeared as though I'd caught her in the middle of having a private moment with herself. She was slightly out of breath and flushed. Don't let me interrupt. Her immediate sense of annoyance fizzled as she stretched languidly, like a cat, hands reaching for the headboard, feet pointed toward the end of the bed, everything in between, stretching between the two. Morna, let me ask you something. If I position my body so that when I orgasm, my lower spine has optimal chance of popping, would that be considered adulting? Hell if I know. Hey, do you think Jesus ever shat himself? Her face scrunched into a grimace and she rolled away from me, tucking the pillow between her shoulder and head into the crook of her neck. The gauzy curtain billowing in the window stretched toward her and then slowly fell. You stink. Go take a shower. her by chance the first night that Morno didn't come home I didn't tell him when he got back because well first fuck him he left without telling me and he stayed away long enough to make me worry so that doesn't warrant any mutual respect on my behalf I knew he would want to pack up right then and go back to Michigan and I didn't want to do that not yet if we went home we could get back to work but if I'm being honest I'm afraid he'll fire me so he won't have to deal with me anymore. I managed to worm my way in, but it would take very little at this point for him to push me back out. Everything feels weird and ambiguous and uncomfortable. He was right about Jolene, by the way. She's okay. I mean, as okay as any young woman alone in this world on any given night. We're all prey to someone, right? But she's safe for the most part staying with a friend of a friend who didn't ask a lot of questions. Unlike me, because the very first thing that I did was grill her on the strip club thing. I thought it would be fun 
It wasn't. Men are gross. Learning the friend of a friend was an elementary school teacher who moonlighted as an art instructor made me feel comfortable for whatever reason. Probably because I'd never seen the occupation of any sex trafficker that popped up on the local Fox affiliate to be something so banal. They usually looked and sounded a little more rough around the edges when you got a glimpse of the mugshots. This friend of a friend gave Jolene a part-time job at the art gallery, and I even popped in one night just to make sure she wasn't lying. Yes, I know, I have trust issues on top of what Morneau calls my boundary issues. But it was a cute little place with a florist shop in the front and a small room that opened up into an outside courtyard where, weather permitting, the beginning artists would create. She told me that some nights they did perspective work. They would paint a set-up vase or something. And then other nights it was a model in varying states of undress. And this woman even gave classes to kids twice a month. So yeah, it was all very... Well, let's just say Jolene is fine. And that should make me happy, right? Well, apparently I'm a shitty person because all I feel is nothing. I feel like I should be doing something, but I don't know what that something is. I'm having a hard time feeling anything but apathy until suddenly I'm simmering in anxiety and I'm on edge. Like something is right around the corner, you know, about to hit. An impending tsunami that will wash me out to sea. And I know it's coming, but there's nothing that I can do but wait. She was still laying on the bed, facing the window, when I got out of the shower. So I padded over to see if she'd fallen asleep. Take the password off the manuscript, Morneau. I sat down on the side of the bed next to her and looked out the window. Getting into the werewolf stuff, huh? Not necessarily, but I like to finish what I start. Well, see, that's your problem, Buttercup. Can we skip your daily recitation of what's wrong with me? I'm not in the mood today. It's not about what's wrong with you, Carla. Have you noticed that when we're not at DEFCON 1 and the situation doesn't require us to be at maximum readiness, you tend to get cranky? No, I hadn't noticed that. Carla, I'm a drunk with what I think we can both agree is a fair amount of emotional detachment, and even I can cobble together a clear diagnosis. <coughs> I reached over her body for the bottle that was on my bedside table. He hasn't looked well for a while. His hands were shaking and that cough sounded awful. His skin had taken on a sickly, yellowish pallor. There's always a sheen of moisture on his face. That look you get when you're clammy and you feel sick to your stomach. He stood up next to the bed and took a long, familiar swig from the whiskey bottle. It was a swig that was meant to stave off the sickness. Alcohol is now the medicine that he needs to keep his body from shutting down. Everything in me aches to make him well because I know that somewhere underneath there is a man who could find pleasure in enough of the little things to fill his days for at least another decade. 
but his body is clearly not on the same timeline. And he will do not a single thing to change that. Maybe at this point he can't. As he took another long slug, finishing the bottle, I tugged lightly on the towel and it slid from his hips. He tossed the empty bottle into a small trash can across the room and he walked around to his side of the bed. He opened his laptop and he sat down facing away from me. I had an urge to trace his spine from the top of his neck down to where his ass disappears beneath the pile of sheets, but I didn't. I don't think he wants me to touch him anymore. I don't think he wants anything. He typed something into the keyboard and then he handed me the laptop. It's not finished. Morneau slid under the sheets and closed his eyes, rolling onto his side. Let me get a nap. Then we'll see about some dinner. As he stood to begin the thankless task of burying the remains, the sound of a scuttling animal and its scent caught his attention, causing Bellamy to cock his ear. He phased instantly. The wolf leapt off the ground, powered by thick, muscled haunches, diving into a copse of bushes. He allowed the rabbit to travel some distance before bounding after it playfully, leaping over dry, toppled limbs, displacing fallen leaves and scurrying through dense brush at high speed. The chase went on for half a mile before the wolf caught up to its prey and snatched the animal, still in mid-leap, vaulting into the air and slinging its head from side to side like a puppy playing with a new squeaky toy and tossing the dead animal to the side. He sat back on his hindquarters, lifted his snout and brayed loudly. Covered in the rabbit's blood, the wolf bounded off the path and back into the woods toward a nearby shallow creek. He sprang into the water at full speed, making the high arc in the air and landing in the center where the water rose to his neck. After howling and thrashing around, he climbed back onto the shore and vigorously gyrated his massive form from side to side, spraying water in all directions. His coat glistened in the moonlight as the wolf padded over to the base of a nearby tree, lifted a hind leg, peed, and then shook once more before settling down into the soft bed of leaves and curling into a ball. Some time later, Bellamy awoke to the scent of cinnamon apples. He sensed it was coming from about two miles away, from the same direction as the smoke billowing from what was probably a wood stove. He stood, slowly, stretching muscles that were sore from his earlier exertion. He walked through the woods, taking in the sounds of birds and crickets, his bare feet plodding against the moist ground, his body unencumbered by clothing. This was, for Bellamy, as good as it gets. He also knew with certainty that what lie ahead was the bloody wrath that he would leave in the wake of his goodbye to a town that had grown as familiar to him as an old flannel shirt. She never knew what hit her. The wolf leapt out of the darkness, caught hold of her hair, and dragged her through the open window onto the ground. Her agonized scream stopped as soon as the wolf ripped into her, tearing fabric and soft flesh. Blood spurted from her carotid as the wolf decapitated her in one swift bite and then latched onto the exposed opening in the stump that was left between her shoulders. He shook his head from side to side, 
the dismembered body dragging across the ground, leaving streaks of blood in the dirt. He gnawed on the woman until all that was left were bones dappled with shreds of flesh. I like human Bellamy better. I realized I was awake when I heard her voice, but even with my eyes already open, I was having trouble focusing. I had the shakes, and my heart was beating in that erratic way that made me want to either lie still and try to control my breathing, or get up and try to shake it off. I opted for the latter, struggling out of the bed. You never want to see the wolf, Carla. Oh, I see the wolf more now. But my toxic trait is thinking that I can pet him without getting my arm chewed off. I just read that part where the wolf drags the woman out of her kitchen window and rips her head off. That is some endearing imagery. Yeah, let me take a shower. Then we'll get something to eat. You mean I'll eat and you'll drink. You already took a shower. Did I? He looked confused for a second just before he went into the bathroom. Maybe I want to take a shit and then wash my ass, Carla. Do I need to make you a hygiene checklist? I got up and pulled on my jeans. I'll go grab us some food. And yes, before you ask, I'll pick up a bottle. You don't look in any condition to be going out tonight. The bathroom door was halfway closed, but he came back out and he walked over to me, still wearing nothing but his ever-present shit-eating grin. That's why I like you, Carla. You know how to read the room. He popped a chaste kiss on my forehead and looked down at me, holding my gaze for longer than I was used to. Later, after everything calmed down, I would think back to that exact moment and how he had looked at me. A little longer and with a little something in his eyes that I will never... I would later learn from the medical examiner that while I was out getting the food that he would never eat and a $900 bottle of Johnny Walker Odyssey that I thought he would get a kick out of but would never drink, Morneau died of a blood clot that traveled into his lung. He also had pneumonia. When the ME started to give me the details about his kidney and his liver, I told him not to bother. I had witnessed their assault firsthand. I didn't need a bunch of medical terminology to bring that all into crystal clear focus. That pricey bottle of Johnny Walker still sits on the mantle above my fireplace. It's a pretty bottle. Triple malt, blend, packaged in a round bottle with a gold top. It might as well be his fucking urn. Months later, when I finally felt I was able to open his laptop, I finished the draft. Morno's half-assed attempt at the last in his Bellamy series fizzled out before he could fashion any kind of cohesive storyline to intertwine with the detective novels. If anything tangible 
illustrated his demise, it was that pathetic manuscript. But at the end of that manuscript draft, he wrote what I am sure was a note for me. It was a simple copy and paste of a quote from the book, The Year of Magical Thinking, by Joan Didion. I know why we try to keep the dead alive. We try to keep them alive in order to keep them with us. I also know that if we are to live ourselves... There comes a point at which we must relinquish the dead. Let Let them them go. go. Keep them them dead. dead. Let Let them them become become the photograph photograph on the table. table. Let them become become the name name on the trust trust accounts. Let go of them in the water. All right. And cut. I would first like to thank Greg Kreitz for giving Dex Morneau a voice. That role was written specifically for him and his glorious set of pipes. So thank you, Greg, for hanging in there with me. Also, a delighted thank you to my son, Jake, who narrated the part of Jake the Kid. I tell you there is a special kind of magic in creating art with someone you girded from your loins. And you know, as I say that out loud, I'm not sure that is actually a word. And if it is, I am certain I did not use it properly in a sentence, but we will move on. I would also like to thank the creators of the other main character in this audio story. And that's the music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you are looking for other podcasts, you can find me over at my other gig, where I do multi-episode deep dives into unsolved homicide and missing persons cases. And that is my other podcast, Down and Away. And finally, if you enjoyed the Dex Morno series, I would love it if you would give us a review. Thank you so much for investing your time in these characters that I made up in my head. I know I enjoyed writing them, so I hope you enjoyed listening to them just as much. <laughs>